0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: A thriving community that is destroyed by a tidal wave Of molasses.
3: People are knocked to the ground. Many of them are drowned almost instantly. A sculpture that may hold the key to an unsolved hijacking.
4: This man committed an amazing act. And a curious hollow coin that exposes a Cold War spy
2: mystery. It was actually a highly tooled concealment device. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. In the heart of Boston, Massachusetts, is a museum that celebrates the proud history of Beantown's bravest, the Boston Fire Museum. Amidst the rugged gear and flame scarred apparel is a singular piece of machinery that's tied to
3: one of the city's darkest days. It's 10 feet tall and about 18 feet long and five and a half feet wide.
2: This coal powered steam engine looks like any other antique fire pump. But history professor Robert Allison knows it's a link to one of the strangest disasters in Boston's storied history.
3: You have buildings collapsed and people dead in the rubble. It's something that no firefighter could have possibly trained for or anticipated.
2: So what was the bizarre incident that led to such devastation? And what part did this hook and ladder play in its aftermath? Boston, 1919. By the end of the First World War, this northeastern city is a crucial hub for the manufacture of munitions. And a key ingredient in making these armaments is the most unlikely of substances, molasses.
3: Molasses can be turned into industrial quality alcohol that is used to make explosives.
2: The demand for the thick brown liquid is so high that it's stored in massive outdoor tanks one of the largest rises an astonishing
3: 50 feet over Boston's business district, the North End. The tank holds over 2 million gallons of molasses. But this
2: seemingly innocuous vessel of sweet-tasting goop is about to set off a disaster of epic proportions. January 15th. It's a beautiful and unseasonably warm winter day in the city of Boston. The North End molasses tank is filled nearly to capacity when suddenly it releases a terrifying sound.
3: People in the neighborhood hear a sound of a machine gun firing. But no
2: one in their wildest dreams can imagine what is about to happen next. The tank's rivets shoot out and the structure explodes, unleashing a giant wave of molasses.
3: Waves of molasses cover everything in their path. Any building that's made of wood is completely destroyed by the molasses.
2: Rolling waves of molasses about 15 feet high flood the streets of Boston's North End.
3: People nearby are knocked to the ground. Many of them are drowned almost instantly.
2: Firefighters race to the scene. And among the first responders is Engine 50, the steamer engine now on display at the Boston Fire Museum.
3: Firefighters extend ladders over the molasses so they can try to reach people who are buried. But rescue workers can only do so much. Trying to rescue someone through two feet deep of molasses is going to impede your progress.
2: In spite of the firefighters' valiant efforts, 21 people are killed. And injuries send 150 people to area hospitals. But the department's job isn't over yet. They still have one final task, to clean up the 2.3 million gallons of goo sticking to the streets of Boston. Engine 50 sprays
3: the area with water, desperately trying to blast away the waist-deep ooze. It takes something like 87,000 man hours to clean up this mess. Ultimately, what they do is push the molasses back into the harbor.
2: With the city finally cleansed, investigators turn their attention to the cause of the explosion. Some people believe that anarchists dropped a bomb into the tank,
3: while others contend that the unseasonably warm weather was a factor. One theory is that this molasses begins to warm up, and as it warms up, it expands, and that's what caused the tank to explode. But officials
2: ultimately blame the owner of the tank, United States Industrial Alcohol, for the collapse.
3: There weren't enough rivets. The steel wasn't strong enough. It was way below grade for holding up 2 million gallons of molasses.
2: The company is forced to pay over $1 million in settlements to victims and their families. But even after the court case, the legacy of this bizarre calamity lives on.
3: It was said into the 1940s, on warm days, you still could smell the molasses as it had permeated the stones and the brick sidewalks of the North End. And here,
2: at the Boston Fire Museum, this steamer is a haunting reminder that even the sweetest things in life can cause a catastrophic disaster. In Seattle, Washington, lovers of the strange and fantastic flock to the tiny one-room cabinet of curiosities that is the Northwest Museum of Legends and Lore. Among the items on display here is this wax likeness
4: of one of America's most infamous fugitives. This is a wax sculpture made to look like police sketch that was made of a man who committed an amazing act.
2: According to journalist Curtis Cartier, this sculpture harkens back to an unsolved mystery. When this man pulled off one of the most audacious airplane hijackings the world has ever seen and got away with it. So who was this daredevil hijacker? And where is he now? November 24th, 1971, Portland, Oregon. Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 to Seattle speeds down the runway. As the aircraft takes to the skies, the smartly dressed man in seat 18C hands a note to a flight attendant.
4: The note says, this is a hijacking. I want you to come sit by me. He says, I have a bomb. And if the man doesn't get what he wants, they'll blow up the plane.
2: Now that he has the flight attendant's attention... The passenger outlines his demands.
4: He wants $200,000 delivered in a knapsack, and he wants four parachutes. Though the flight crew is baffled by this request, they immediately
2: relay the message to authorities. And the jet stays on its planned course and lands
4: in Seattle, where the hijacker waits for police to comply with his demands. He receives everything he asks for. They bring $200,000 in unmarked $20 bills, and they bring four parachutes. The mysterious criminal releases the passengers,
2: but some of the airline staff aren't so lucky. Keeping the pilots and one flight attendant as hostages, the hijacker commands the crew to fly him to Mexico,
4: but no one is prepared for what is about to happen. The man begins disassembling one parachute. He then uses the straps from one of the cords to wrap the money around him. And what the man
2: does next is nothing short of shocking. Attached to a second parachute, he steps out of the rear door of the plane and jumps, disappearing into the ether over Washington State. With the daredevil criminal out of sight, The plane is diverted to Reno, Nevada, where the FBI takes up the case. And when they investigate the flight manifest, they make a critical discovery.
4: Pretty soon they figure out that one of the passengers is missing, a man named Dan Cooper.
2: Although the FBI believes that Dan Cooper is an alias, they release the information to the swarming press. One reporter mishears the name and reports it as
4: D.B. Cooper that runs on wires around the world and ends up sticking. The elusive D.B. Cooper becomes an international media sensation. But as he continues to grab headlines, his whereabouts remain a mystery. The FBI takes up a massive manhunt, but it's all for naught. Aside from the infamous name, one of the few leads frustrated authorities have is a crude description of the hijacker. Eyewitnesses describe Cooper as standing about six feet tall, with a receding hairline, about 160-170 pounds in about his mid-40s. The
2: FBI sketches composited from eyewitness accounts provide the model for the wax head later created by the curators of the Northwest Museum of Legends and Lore. But the question remains, what happened to this daredevil fugitive? In 1971, a man who would become known as D.B. Cooper hijacks a plane bound for Seattle, Washington and absconds with $200,000 in ransom money by leaping out of the jet's door at 10,000 feet, literally disappearing into thin air. So who exactly was D.B. Cooper? And where is he now? For years, the FBI remains in pursuit of the mysterious hijacker
4: who pulled off this audacious crime. The FBI questions up to 1,000 people over the course of their decades-long investigation, but seems to create more questions than it does answers. Eventually, the case goes cold. Then, in
2: 2011, a woman named Marla Cooper comes forward with an extraordinary statement. She claims to know the true identity of the notorious D.B. Cooper.
4: Marla's story begins 40 years earlier, when she is 8 years old. She overheard two of her uncles plotting something that she called very mischievous.
2: But Marla thinks nothing more of the discussion. Until days later, when one of the uncles,
4: Lynn Doyle Cooper, or LD, pays a surprise visit. On Thanksgiving Day, L.D. came home from what he said was a turkey hunt, but he had a shirt covered in blood. He explained it saying he'd been in an auto accident.
2: That Thanksgiving was the day after D.B. Cooper's famous leap. So was Marla's uncle, L.D. Cooper, actually the notorious hijacker of Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305? And was he injured in a car crash, as he claimed? Or while making that fabled jump? The question would remain unanswered for another 40 years. L.D. Cooper dies in 1999. And several years later, Marla decides to finally come forward to the FBI, presenting them with a picture of her uncle, the man she believes could be D.B. Cooper. Astoundingly, it bears a strong resemblance to the FBI sketch of the hijacker and the museum's wax head. Agents hope a DNA test will provide the final proof they need. After taking a blood sample from L.D. Cooper's daughter, they compare it to the DNA collected from the one piece of evidence D.B. Cooper left behind on the hijacked plane— his clip-on tie. But the samples don't match, leaving agents to question whether
4: the DNA on the tie actually belonged to D.B. Cooper. A lot of authorities believe the clip-on tie might have been cross-contaminated. So the sample itself is suspect. Four decades after his infamous feat, the true
2: identity of the man known as D.B. Cooper remains a mystery. And his sculpted likeness at the Northwest Museum of Legends and Lore may be as close as anyone will ever get to the mysterious criminal who pulled off the only unsolved airline hijacking in U.S. history. Tucked away on the campus of Ohio State University in the capital city of Columbus is the Bird Polar Research Center, an institution dedicated to studying the world's coldest and least habitable regions. Here, among the building's vast archives, is one object that curator Laura Kissel says blew the lid off a century-old mystery.
5: It's a photograph fading with time. It's more than 100 years old. It features a gentleman holding a flag on a mountain.
2: This 5-by-7-inch snapshot is one of the most iconic images in the history of exploration. And one that incited a firestorm of controversy. So how did this photograph lead to the downfall of one of the nation's most celebrated explorers? The early 1900s. Adventurers the world over are traveling to the planet's harshest landscapes in the quest to ascend its highest peaks. One of these trailblazers is Dr. Frederick Cook, a New York physician with an unusual passion.
5: He was very interested in polar exploration. He's already been to Greenland several times, and to Antarctica, he certainly had the makings to become a great explorer.
2: In the spring of 1906, Cook begins planning his next conquest he sets a particularly lofty goal to be the first to ascend North America's highest peak, Mount McKinley.
5: Reaching the peak of Mount McKinley is very important to an explorer because it means fame and it means money.
2: And on May 29th, after months of preparation, Cook and his team of seven men arrive on the Alaskan coastline. They begin a grueling trek to the unmapped interior... And by July, they are finally near the base of Mount McKinley, only to find a steep maze of granite cliffs and icy buttresses standing between them and the seemingly impenetrable peak.
5: They are struggling with the cold. They're struggling with the thin air. They couldn't find an acceptable route to the top.
2: Beaten back by the harsh terrain, the disheartened explorers head back in defeat. But once they get to the coast, a frustrated Cook makes a surprising decision to return to the mountain. In mid-August, he once again sets off for the 20,000-foot peak with a crew member named Ed Barrel. More than a month later, Cook and Barrow return to the camp in triumph, reporting that they have successfully summited Mount McKinley. And Cook proudly shows off proof of their stunning feat.
5: He had Beryl, pulled the American flag, and Cook takes a picture of him at the summit.
2: On their return to civilization, the image becomes the pride of a nation. And Cook is hailed for his amazing accomplishment. But one man is unconvinced by Cook's heroic claims. Fellow explorer and rival, Robert Peary. Believing that Cook lacked the expertise to make such a climb, Peary asserts that Cook's story is a fraud.
5: Peary didn't think it took Cook long enough to actually have summited Mount McKinley.
2: In October of 1909, Peary seems to get the proof he needs to expose his rival.
5: Cook's climbing partner, Ed Barrell, makes an affidavit that says that Cook never did achieve the summit of Mount McKinley.
2: And that Cook's famous Mount McKinley summit photograph... Was actually taken on a different peak.
5: Cook, of course, denies that this is true and indicates that Peary had paid Beryl for his affidavit.
2: So, did Frederick Cook really reach the top of Mount McKinley, as this photo seems to prove? Or was it all just a monumental hoax? At the turn of the last century, it was every mountaineer's dream to be the first to reach the peak of Alaska's Mount McKinley. In 1906, explorer Frederick Cook announces that he has achieved this epic feat. As proof, he releases a photograph supposedly taken at the mountain summit. But Cook's rival, explorer Robert Peary claims, that photo is a fake. In 1997, Historian Robert Bryce is researching the infamous Cook-Peary controversy that was stirred up some 90 years earlier.
5: When Robert Bryce is doing his research, he comes upon this photo of the summit of Mount McKinley taken by Dr. Cook. But he recognizes that the photo is different than the published photo that he has seen of the summit.
2: This is the original photograph that Cook supposedly took on the summit of Mount McKinley. But when this picture was first published, it was cropped, which leads Bryce to a startling revelation.
5: The uncropped edges show other mountains in the background that cannot be seen if one is truly at the summit of Mount McKinley.
2: Through careful study of the surrounding landscape, Bryce determines that Cook must have taken his iconic photo on top of a much smaller mountain, now known as the Fake Peak.
5: It's concluded that the photograph was actually taken only at about 5,000 feet and almost 20 miles away from the actual summit of Mount McKinley.
2: Because Cook published a cropped version of this picture in his original account of the climb, he was able to pass off his feet as genuine.
5: Cook realized that if he published the full image of the photo that he took at the fake peak, that people would realize that that was not where he said he was.
2: With Cook's fraud uncovered, a 90-year controversy is finally put to rest. And this photo in the collection of the Bird Polar Research Center remains at the center of it all, a testament to one explorer's towering ambition and proof of his elaborate hoax. A trench coat once worn by the heiress-turned-terrorist Patty Hearst and the cabin that housed the infamous Unabomber are just two of the items that feature in the FBI exhibit at Washington, D.C.'s museum. But among the objects on display sits one so small it could easily be overlooked.
6: It's a five-cent nickel. It looks exactly like any other nickel.
2: Bearing the date 1948 and the profile of Thomas Jefferson, on the surface, this nickel may seem like any other. But FBI historian John Fox knows this is no
6: ordinary coin. This coin is sliced through the thin part of the coin so that it falls into two halves. Once, the worth of this five-cent
2: piece far exceeded its face value, when it served as an unlikely tool for an international spy. So what covert secrets did this Jefferson nickel once hold? It's June 22, 1953, in Brooklyn, New York. Jimmy Bozart, a newspaper delivery boy for the Brooklyn Eagle, is collecting payments from the customers on his paper route. After finishing his rounds, he walks
6: away with a handful of change. He's tossing the coins in his hands, and as he's playing with them, he drops the coins. The nickel splits open, and inside of it was a small piece of film black with very little white specks on it. What is the meaning of this strange
2: coin and its contents? Baffled, Jimmy takes the coin home and shows his
6: family. One of the family members actually knew a police officer, and somehow the information gets back to the FBI. Jimmy hands
2: over the hollow nickel to the feds, who bring it back to their lab and subject it to thorough scrutiny it was actually a highly tooled concealment device. And it's the small sheet of film hidden inside that attracts the most interest.
6: If you look very closely, you could tell that there are actually numbers on this piece of plastic. The FBI knew that this was actually a concealed message. Immediately, the feds get to work trying to crack the code, which
2: they suspect was written by Soviet agents.
6: The United States was in the midst of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And so espionage was on the forefront of the minds of everybody in the nation. So was
2: this cunning device really created by Russian spies? And what does the coded message say?
5: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
6: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: For spies of the Cold War, some of their most dangerous weapons weren't guns or missiles, but secret codes. So in 1953, when the FBI finds a microfilm covered with rows of cryptic numbers, hidden inside a hollow nickel. They suspect it's a communique from
6: one Soviet agent to another. But can they break the code? The cryptanalysts tried to look at it and to crack that message, but they couldn't read it. Then, four
2: years after the discovery of the hollow nickel, federal agents get an unlikely break in the case.
6: May of 1957... A Russian national walks into the American embassy in Paris and says that he's been operating as a spy in America.
2: His name is Reino Hayhanan, and he wants to defect. In exchange for sanctuary, he offers information to American officials. Within days, Hayhanan is sent to FBI headquarters in D.C., where he is subjected to a full interrogation.
6: He told us he came over to the United States in 1952 or so and began working with another Soviet agent.
2: Heyhanan explains that he was assigned to report to a KGB officer known only as Mark. But face-to-face meetings with his new boss were shrouded in mystery. To exchange intelligence, the agents used trick containers, such as cufflinks, hollowed-out bolts, and coins— custom-made to hide top-secret messages.
6: Reno Noheyanen showed us a couple of Finnish coins that he had that were hollowed out.
2: Immediately,
6: the FBI makes the link to the Jefferson
2: nickel they've held onto for the last four years. It seems this very coin could be another one of the Soviet spies' trick containers. But
6: what does the coded dispatch say? With the information that hey Hannon was able to give us, we were actually able to break the message.
2: And agents are surprised to find out who this hollow nickel's intended recipient is.
6: And it turns out it was to hey You're know, kind of welcoming him to the United States and to uh, give him some additional information about how he's supposed to operate. But the communique meant for hey Hannon was lost.
2: And while nobody knows how the coin slipped into general circulation— one theory is that Mark may have accidentally used it as real currency. With the mystery of this hollow nickel finally put to rest, agents have just one more task to complete. Identify and arrest Mark. Again, it's the invaluable Heyhanen who ultimately leads them to this shadowy spy master, whose real name is Rudolf Ivanovich Abel.
6: He was a semi-professional photographer in New York and he was using his cover of photography to do his job as a spy. On June 21st, 1957, Mark is arrested at
2: a Manhattan hotel, where the FBI finds evidence suggesting that he is the mastermind behind a vast network of Soviet spies operating on U.S. soil, and that he has been sending copious amounts of intelligence to his homeland over the past decade.
6: He had photographic equipment to produce the microphotographs used to pass along intelligence.
2: Later that year, a defiant Rudolf Abel is tried and found guilty of espionage and sentenced to 45 years in prison, leaving the Soviet Union spy network in the U.S. in ruins.
6: The whole case of, of Rudolf Abel, the Soviet agent, begins with a paperboy finding. Uh, a, an odd coin as he's going about his daily routine. And this hollow
2: nickel remains on display at the museum in Washington, D.C., a relic of one of the most confounding spy mysteries of the Cold War. Historic auto attractions in Roscoe, Illinois, lives up to its name, with over 70 special cars connected to stars of racing, Hollywood, and the world stage. But beyond the rows and rows of spectacular vehicles, there's one artifact you wouldn't expect to find here. It's an everyday accessory, a pair of sunglasses with black plastic frames. But to author Gary Moore,
8: they'll forever be a symbol of a momentous time in music history. I think glasses like that are intrinsically linked in our mind to early rock and roll. In fact, these glasses belonged to a musician who helped
2: define the very essence of rock and roll, but whose early death also prompted rumors of a curse that has haunted his legacy for over half a century. His name? Buddy Holly. So what is the curse of Buddy Holly? And could it be true? January 1959. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Buddy Holly kicks off a grueling tour of the Midwest that will take him to 24 cities in just three weeks. Joining him on the road are several other acts, including teen sensation Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson, known as the Big Bopper.
8: But almost immediately, logistical problems emerge. It's obvious the tour is booked by people who had certainly never been to the northern part of the Midwest during the winter. It was bitterly cold and they were zigzagging back and forth across from Wisconsin to Minnesota to Illinois to Iowa with their hectic schedule the
2: musicians are forced to take long overnight bus rides spanning hundreds of miles in
8: freezing conditions the artists are very upset they're cold they had a series of breakdowns in some cases musicians would end up on the side of the road and be there for 4 or 5 6 hours After 11 days on the road, the disgruntled musicians
2: pull into Clear Lake, Iowa, where they are set to perform at the Surf Ballroom. By the time he ended up in Clear Lake, Iowa, Buddy was just fed up with it. After the show, a road-weary Holly makes a fateful decision. Reluctant to endure another freezing overnight bus trip, he arranges for a local pilot to take him and two of his bandmates, Tommy Alsup and Waylon Jennings, to their next gig in Moorhead, Minnesota, by plane. But when Holly's tourmates learn about his
8: plan, they start angling for seats on the aircraft. Richie Valens was begging Tommy Alsop for a seat on this airplane. Tommy didn't want to give up the seat. Finally, they decided to toss the coin, and Richie won. But Valens isn't the only
2: musician to secure a last-minute seat that night. When tourmate J.P. Richardson, who
8: has the flu, asks Waylon Jennings if he can take his place on the flight, Jennings agrees. When Buddy found out that Waylon had given up his seat on the flight, he looked at Waylon and he says, I hope you freeze your butt off on that old bus. And Waylon turned to Buddy and said, Well, I hope your plane crashes. Those words would reportedly haunt Jennings
2: for the rest of his life. At approximately 1 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959, the tiny plane carrying Holly, Valens, and Richardson takes off. But when the aircraft fails to reach its destination, airport officials in Iowa start to worry. At first light, a search pilot sets off from Mason City
8: to look for the missing plane, only to make a shocking discovery. Less than five minutes outside of the airport, he saw what he thought was the wreckage uh, in a field. The wings had been separated. The tail was pointing straight up in the air. And uh, the actual fuselage of the plane looked like just a ball of aluminum and and wires.
2: The three stars, Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson, and Buddy Holly, along with the pilot of the plane, are dead. The reaction
8: was, was shock, disbelief.
2: An investigation later identifies a mix of poor weather conditions and pilot error as the cause of the crash. But the story doesn't end there. With Holly's death, some people say, a curse is born. The world of rock and roll is shaken to its core when Buddy Holly's plane crashes in a snowy field in Iowa in the winter of 1959, killing everyone on board. But is this just a tragic accident, or... Is it the beginning of the so-called curse of Buddy Holly? In the wake of the tragedy, singer Eddie Cochran records a tribute to Holly. Just months later, in 1960, he's killed in a car crash. He's only
8: 21 years old when he dies, and that helped kind of perpetuate this uh, this rumor of a curse. And it's a rumor
2: that won't disappear. Singer David Box is hired by Holly's former band, The Crickets. And in 1964, he too is killed when a small plane he's flying in comes crashing down. Even the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, the venue of the last gig Holly ever played, seems bedeviled by misfortune. In 1990, the musician Del Shannon plays in a Buddy Holly tribute concert at the venue with Holly's old band, the Crickets, as backing. Five days later, he commits suicide, leading some to speculate that he is the latest victim of the Buddy Holly curse.
8: I think that curses and uh, conspiracy theories rise because we're looking for a a reason that our, our heroes die.
2: Whether a string of mere coincidences or possible clues to a mysterious curse... One thing is certain about the legacy of Buddy Holly. Even though his life was cut short, his legend lives on and is preserved here at Historic Auto Attractions, where this pair of sunglasses sits as a memorial to a man and his music. Pipes, pots, and tools. Old relics that once belonged to the hardworking laborers who built part of America's railroads. These are some of the items on display at the Duffy's Cut Museum located on the campus of Immaculata University in southeastern Pennsylvania. Yet one set of macabre items speaks not of daily life, but of sudden death. These are shattered pieces of human bones. And as history professor Bill Watson learned firsthand, they're evidence of an unspeakable crime.
7: When we found this skull, we had no idea who it belonged to. It was obviously fragmentary. It was very old. In fact, this skull is part of a group of
2: seven sets of skeletal remains that were found buried in an unmarked grave. They tell a sinister tale of lives cut brutally short and a shocking cover-up. Whose remains are these? And how can they shed light on a mysterious disappearance that took place nearly two centuries ago? June 1832. 57 young Irish immigrants are hired to help build a section of the fledgling Pennsylvania Railroad, known as Duffy's
7: Cut. Among them is 18-year-old John Ruddy from Donegal. He's younger than a lot of the others. He was coming over here to look for the American dream. Ruddy
2: and his fellow laborers are strong, healthy, and ideally suited to the job. These were a group of laborers who were ready, willing, and able to do this backbreaking work. But just a few short months after their arrival in America, Ruddy and the other men vanish, never to be heard from again. The only clue to their disappearance is a local newspaper article from November 1832, which reports the deaths of nine immigrant workers from cholera at Duffy's Cut. But what happened to the 48 other Irish laborers? Did they, too, die of cholera? Or did they meet an even worse fate? It's a mystery that would lie buried for 170 years. Literally, history just passed this story by. September 2002. History professor Bill Watson inherits a stash of documents from his late grandfather, who served as assistant to the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. Among the papers is a file that immediately
7: attracts Watson's attention. The file says on the second page, don't let this get out of the office. It was the Pennsylvania Railroad's official story of what happened back in 1832. Intrigued, he reads on and soon makes a startling discovery. The newspaper report said nine men died at the spot. And whereas this file states very specifically that it was 57 men had died of cholera. But if disease claimed the lives of all
2: 57 of the Irish workers from Duffy's Cut, as the company's files state, how could this simple fact have been misreported as only nine deaths in the newspaper?
7: As the reporting of the cholera epidemic in 1832 is very matter of fact. But in this case, it was obfuscation and hiding of information Being Irish-American himself,
2: Watson can't help but wonder why the two figures are so wildly different. Could the railroad have covered up the actual number of workers who died? And if so, why? Philadelphia, 1832. A local newspaper reports that nine Irish railroad workers out of a crew of 57 perished during a cholera outbreak. Then, over 150 years later, in 2002, a confidential file from the Pennsylvania Railroad Company falls into the hands of history professor Bill Watson. The document states that all 57 workers died in the outbreak. Why are these figures so different? Was there a cover-up? As an Irish-American and a historian with deep ties to the area, Bill Watson decides to investigate. He makes it his mission to try and find the bodies of the missing railroad workers.
7: The question we have, of course, is where could 57 men be buried?
2: The old railroad file indicates that the men were buried in a grave somewhere in the valley near Duffy's Cut, where the laborers were working at the time of their deaths. For the next four and a half years, Watson and his researchers scour the area and dig up countless artifacts from the workers' lives. Artifacts now in the collection of the Duffy's Cut Museum. Then, in December 2008, using a ground-penetrating radar, he finally finds what he's been looking for.
7: We found remains of a human being at Duffy's Cut. The first piece that came out actually was a tibia. Later that day, we got a human skull.
2: And this skeleton is not alone. In the same area, the team discovers a total of seven sets of human remains, the very ones now on display at the Duffy's Cut Museum. To determine the cause of death, the bones are sent to forensic
7: scientists who first examine this fractured skull. came out of the ground in pieces, and we were able to find out that this was a blow to his head. This could have been delivered by a shovel, could have been delivered by a pickaxe, and it was probably the cause of his death. But that's
2: not all. When the scientists analyze the rest of the remains, they find evidence of bullet holes and ax marks, suggesting that these people did not die of cholera, but were murdered. They were bludgeoned or or hacked or, or shot to death. So if these skeletons do belong to the men of the Duffy's cut crew, why were they killed? One leading theory emerges. In 1832, anti-Irish prejudice casts a long shadow over Protestant America. And if a group of immigrants was thought to be responsible for spreading cholera, it could have easily incited a mob to violence.
7: There are instances of vigilante groups murdering suspected cholera victims who are immigrants. And it would have been a very easy task for a couple of men with shotguns to ring that valley and make sure that no one got out of there.
2: If this is, in fact, what happened, not only does the Pennsylvania Railroad fail to report the brutal bloodbath, they also appear to have actively staged a cover-up.
7: The reason why the railroad would have had an interest in covering this up is they can't recruit new Irish crews if an Irish work group in Ireland knew they were going to get murdered over here.
2: Of the seven sets of remains that were recovered, only one has been positively identified. This skull
7: had the distinctive characteristic of a missing right top front molar, which is a one in a million dental anomaly.
2: Watson is able to trace this rare trait to the members of one particular family in Donegal, Ireland. And the dental match and DNA tests on the bones conclusively prove that this skull belonged to their long-lost relative. 18 year old John Ruddy. But where are the bodies of the other 50 men who worked alongside John Ruddy in the Duffy's cut crew? Although Watson's radar has detected additional human remains under the present day rail line, these bones can't be excavated for fear of destabilizing the tracks.
7: And so they're going to remain there forever, unfortunately.
2: The tragic deaths of these Irish workers may never be fully understood, but in the Duffy's Cut Museum at Immaculata University, their bones are a poignant reminder of the immigrant laborers who helped build a new nation. From secret codes to a sinister curse, faked photos to a flood of molasses. I'm Don Wildman, and these
1: are the Mysteries at the Museum.